1: How do you do? Thank you for joining me again. Pull up a seat at the campfire, partners. Open a can of them there beans, and let's have an honest-to-goodness sing song.
2: Howdy, neighbors. Howdy. This is your Challenger Cowboy, Harry Bryan, talking to you again about Challenger Feet.
1: Excellent. I do love talking about animal feed.
2: Challenger feeds the very best Proven so by every test Those who use it always say It will make your own hen lay With a pop-pop here and a pop-pop there Eggs popping out of everywhere Ow!
1: Oh, my goodness. An egg just popped out of my... person... Well, that's breakfast sorted then.
2: Challenger feed always click when given to your baby chicks.
1: Ah, baby chicks.
2: They grow as fast as they possibly can. They soon end up in the frying pan.
1: Ah, baby chicks in a frying pan. That's a nice image.
2: Challenger feed takes all the when given to your dairy cow. Standing there.
1: With satisfied faces, milk burning out of all four places. Let me see. One, two, three, four. Oh. Oh. Oh my goodness. Lash of milk, Shiny? No, thank you. My mother thanks you. My father thanks you. My sister thanks you. And I assure you, I thank you. <laughs> Ridiculous amounts of you entering the Hitchcock competition in the past week. Thank you for your entries. And emails have been flying in from you all. Among them, Emma Park, for instance, who is in the midst of recovering from a medical procedure. Maybe a Canterbury will speed that recovery along. I hand it to you gently, along with some grapes and a woman's weekly in case you get bored. Canterbury. Ian Luxford, all the way over in Brazil, I think. Thank you for the pep talk, my friend. Have a Canterbury with a Brazilian (laughs) flavour. The family Haughty have written, who listened to the latest Hitchcock on their way to France. This calls for a Canterbury with a French piquancy. And to Joe, who emailed and who's been listening to the podcasts while administering the early morning feeds to his son. I know exactly how that feels, my brother. Put the old headphones on, Joe, and turn them up. Nice, relaxing Canterbury action for you.
2: Canterbury. Canterbury.
1: And from Bjorn in Belgium. Not just any Bjorn, by the way. Bjorn Kuikoven, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. The man with the freaking ridiculously cool name who's been watching lots of golden age classics with his family lately. You get a Bogarted version. Louis... I think this is the beginning of a beautiful... And finally, to the Earbud team at NPR, of all places, thank you so much for selecting Attaboy Clarence to be part of your new podcast recommendation initiative. I am super honoured to have made the grade, so a huge thanks to Nicole, Rose and Beth at NPR. NPR, for goodness sakes. What an honour. Okay, hands up if you think popcorn isn't cool. Well, you're about to feel very silly. Well, hello, boy. Now, what do you say?
2: Let's make with the popcorn right away. Too much trouble and bother, yes, indeed. No, man, heat's all you need. You need more than heat, boy, according to Hoyle. You need popcorn, salt, butter and oil in a frying pan, or to be completely proper, you ought to have a popper. Cool, huh? Dig it, you ain't a hip, old man, to easy pop popped in its own pan. You mean easy pop popped in its own pan? Now you're swinging, Daddy, crazy man. So freaking cool. Me to the grocery shop, will both take a pan of this easy pop. Now, uh, give it the heat bed. That's the wildest. Easy pops, too much, the neatest, the mildest. We'll all have a gallon in just about a minute. Popcorn, salt, and oil, and everything in it.
1: I'm not embarrassed by this at all. What do you know? No muss, no fuss. There's easy pop popcorn for all of us. Easy pop, man, that's real popcorn. Okay, now embarrassed. So, Halloween then. Yes, I'm a little late, but hey, for all you Halloween lovers, the fun continues. I thought I'd go a little different today. I'm not delving into horror per se, but I do want... I can't believe I just said per se. But I do want to tell you about a few blood-curdling monster movies that you could go looking for to ease you out of your Halloween hangover. Or maybe, in the case of one of them,
3: avoid it like the plague.
1: First up, let's take a trip to 1969 for the Ray Harryhausen spectacular, The Valley of Guanji.
0: He who takes from Guanji, the evil one, is cursed. My eyes are blind,
2: but I can still see the signs.
3: Keep your superstitions to yourself, old woman.
2: Fool! Ah, one day he will learn to obey the law of Guanji. Or oh, like his brother, he will perish.
1: The poster for this film carries the line Cowboys battle monsters in the lost world of Forbidden Valley. Yes, that kind of sums it up. So this is about a travelling rodeo show passing through a sleepy Mexican border town looking for the next big attraction. They find it when they're given a tiny horse named El Diablo by a local who took it from a mysterious hidden area out in the Mexican desert known as Forbidden Valley. The cowboys, along with a paleontologist, anxious to make a new discovery, arrive to find a lost world dominated by dinosaurs and most notably Guanji, a ferocious Tyrannosaurus.
2: What kind of bird is it, Professor? Oh, no bird. A giant pterodactyl, a flying reptile.
1: It's been extinct for over 50 million years.
2: Then what's it doing here?
1: Precisely. Sensing an opportunity to revive their flagging fortunes, they capture Guanji and take him back to civilization so that they can exhibit him. But in time honored tradition, the captured monster breaks free and begins to run amok. Damn! I know what's happened! Guanji's loose! I'll get your rifles. So, cowboys versus dinosaurs then, and when the action begins, it's impressive stuff. The problem is that it takes a very long time for the action to actually begin. The first half of the film is taken up with a rather plodding tale about a cocky, stunt cowboy returning to the rodeo to romance his ex-girlfriend. And while it's witty enough, you know that dinosaurs are going to be involved at some point, and so you're willing the film to get on with it. However, when it does start getting on with it, it's classic monster mayhem, courtesy of Ray Harryhausen. You have a fight with a pterodactyl, a fight between Guanji and a triceratops, a fight between Guanji and the cowboys, and then, at the film's climax, a quite impressive rampage through the town by Guanji, ending in a big fight in a church, complete with inferno. Lots of it is pretty hokey, for instance the cowboys wear pink trousers, and the old gypsy lady's eye patch is drawn on for some reason, but if you can make it through the dull stuff at the beginning, you'll find an excellent creature feature waiting in the shadows for you. Next up, a first time watch for me of The Fly from 1958. I'm an ardent admirer of the David Cronenberg version from 1986, which I consider to be one of the greatest horror movies of all time. And I always kind of wrote this older version off because of a poster I saw years ago, which had Vincent Price being terrorized by a man with a huge fly's head. Just goes to show you that you should never judge a book by its cover, because this is actually a really great movie. It opens with a quite grisly Murder scene. A lady named Helene has murdered her scientist husband, André, by crushing his head in a hydraulic press.
2: Helene?
3: How are you, Helene, dear? What can I do for you?
2: Francois, I've killed André. I need your help.
3: Oh, now look, Helene, it's past midnight. I've had a hard day. I love you both dearly, but this sort of a joke...
2: It's true.
0: I've killed André.
3: You killed...
2: Please help me. Call the police and come quickly.
1: Investigating the crime is Inspector Charas, played by Herbert Marshall, along with the dead man's brother, Francois, played by Vincent Price. The first thing they notice is that despite the apparently harmonious relationship between Andre and his wife, she seems to feel no remorse for her actions. In fact, she seems rather relieved that she's killed him. On top of that, she seems to be exhibiting some peculiar behavior, such as hunting a rather mysterious white-headed fly around the house and gardens. Do
0: flies live a long time?
1: I don't know. Why?
0: Because I saw that fly Mummy was looking for again.
3: I didn't know your mother was looking for one.
0: Oh, yes, she was. It's grown quite a lot, but I recognized it all right.
3: How did you recognize it, Philippe?
0: Its head is white instead of black, and it has a funny sort of leg.
3: When did you first see that fly, Philippe?
0: The day Daddy went away. I had caught it, but Mummy made me let it go. And then later, she wanted me to find it again. She changed her mind.
1: It soon emerges that Andre was involved in some rather startling experiments in teleportation, and that along the way, something has gone horribly, horribly wrong.
3: Did your brother ever experiment with animals? Never. Or insects? Insects? <laughs> now, that would be funny if... No, Helene and Andre believed in the sacredness of life, they wouldn't harm anything not even a fly.
1: What I instantly loved about The Fly was that it takes its time and sets up a really intriguing mystery before allowing the horror to flourish. This is a seemingly normal home with normal people, but there's a distinctly nightmarish odour from the very start. The shadows loom long in the corners of the screen, despite the radiant technicolour. It's certainly not as explicit as the Cronenberg version, very few films are But it does carry the same nasty streak And despite the god-awful poster that soured me towards the film all those years ago The actual monster doesn't come out to play until almost the very end And yet it's not a problem because the film isn't actually about a marauding monster. It's about a man who's involved in a horrible accident and who's trying desperately to fix it before he's no longer able to. It also carries a stinging little macabre coda, a brief scene between Vincent Price and Herbert Marshall at the film's close that I'd been led to believe was a piece of camp nonsense, but which I actually found to be rather spine-chilling. Impressive stuff overall and remarkably restrained considering the subject and the period in which it was made. Definitely check it out if you haven't seen it already. <laughs> Lastly, today, a film that I rank right down there with The Trollenberg Terror, The Phantom Creeps, and Shut up! The Gorilla. Yes, this is the new low point. In filmmaking, people, because at least the gorilla had Bailey Lugosi and Lionel Atwill. Therefore, it gives me great disappointment to crown the new holder. The worst film I've ever seen. A bone-shatteringly, mind-meltingly, eye-scorchingly, tramplingly patience patient-stretch-thinningly, diabolically unentertaining experience from 1956 called Indestructible Man. This tells the story of armed robber and murderer Butcher Benton, played by Lorne Chaney Jr., who was executed for his crimes in the gas chamber just after swearing revenge on his henchmen and his lawyer, who'd betrayed Butcher in order to get their hands on his hidden loot.
3: You're a fool, Butcher. If you hadn't tried to double-cross Queenie Ellis and Joe Marcella, they wouldn't have turned state's evidence against you. But you had to get greedy. You wanted to keep the whole $600,000
2: for yourself. Well, the boys got sore, and I don't blame them.
1: After his death, Butcher's body is sold to a mad scientist who injects a secret formula, plus copious amounts of electricity, into Butcher's corpse, which not only brings him back to life, but also endows him with the power of indestructibility. His body is now impervious to bullets, needles, bee stings, kicked shins, you name it. Careful, his reactions are violent.
3: How do you explain this? Each cell must have multiplied a hundred times, perhaps thousands. His strength is unbelievable. No, 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 it's too late for the amyl nitrate. I want to get some blood samples, uh, make some tests on him, find out what's happened. Uh, get me a syringe. Why won't the needle penetrate the skin? The tissue must be nearly a solid mass of
1: cells. So using his newfound invulnerability, Butcher goes after the men who betrayed him, while the police do their best to try and stop this indestructible and somewhat scruffy man. <laughs> such a terrible film that part of me doesn't even want to give it any more oxygen <laughs> but I also feel that if I can save you from wasting 70 minutes of your time here on earth on this claptrap then the entire series of Atta Boy Clarence episodes will have been worth it Lon, Lon Chaney looks as though he's just woken up for the entire film it doesn't doesn't actually say anything for the whole film. In real life, he was suffering the after effects of throat surgery and couldn't talk. So naturally, was the correct choice for the lead in a movie. <laughs> 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 the, the only acting he does, aside from stumbling around and throttling people, is when, from time to time, he's called upon to show his inner turmoil By staring into the camera and wiggling his eyebrows all over the place. (laughs) Which makes him look like a Victorian gentleman watching a peep show. (laughs) So boring, too. Most of the film is him wandering around the city, looking up at windows to see if certain people are at home. Ring the bell, Lon. Ring the bell. Also, instead of coming up with a wonderfully ingenious way of destroying a man who, remember, can't be destroyed, the writing team of Vi Russell and Sue Dwiggins completely run out of ideas and decide that actually, he's not that impervious. In fact, he is pretty pervious to flamethrowers and bazookas. So first, they get someone to flamethrower him in the face until his face melts a bit. Then... Someone else fires bazookas at him. Until one of the bazookas hits him in the solar plexus, which is his Achilles heel, or Achilles plexus, if you will, which inexplicably reverses the science that brought him to life, allowing him to be electrocuted back to death again. Uh, <laughs> I don't object to the pulpy camp of the movie. I don't even mind that Lon Chaney looks like Bob Geldof for most of the film. But I do object most strongly to a 70-minute film that contains only three minutes of incident. It was such a waste of my life. That I actually feel rather aggrieved by it. I could have done something far more valuable with my time, such as stared directly into the sun for an hour or walked my dog. I would give all that I own for this to have happened. <laughs> <laughs> I also don't think that someone with a name like Sue Dwiggins <laughs> should be writing horror films. Oh, dear. Well, for Radio Chills tonight, we're going over to a show called Escape, which ran from 1947 to 1954, and generally relayed stories of high adventure, which would occasionally stray into horror territory. Well, it's one such tale that we're going to hear tonight, one of the most famous tales to ever appear on the radio of yesteryear. And one that was revived time and time again during the Golden Age, a story entitled Three Skeleton Key. This particular version was aired in 1950 and stars the masterful Vincent Price. So buckle up tight for half an hour of terror. Tonight we escape to a lonely lighthouse off the steaming jungle coast of French Guiana.
3: And a nightmare world of terror and violence. As we bring you again in response to hundreds of requests, Three Skeleton Key, starring Vincent Price. Picture this place. A gray tapering cylinder welded by iron rods and concrete to the key itself. A bare black rock, 150 feet long, maybe 40 wide, that's at low tide. At high tide, just the lighthouse, rising 110 feet straight up out of the ocean. And all about it, the churning water, gray, green, scum dappled, warm as soup, and swarming with gigantic bat-like devil fish. Great violet schools, a Portuguese man-of-war, and yes, sharks, the big ones, the 15-footers. And as if this weren't enough, there was a hot, dank, rotten-smelling wind that came at us day and night off the jungle swamps of the mainland, a wind that smelled like death, a wind that had smelled the slow and frightful death that came one night to this bare black rock. Set in the base of the light was a watertight bronze door, and in you went, and up, yes, up and up and round and round, past the tanks of oil and the coils of rope, casks of wicks, racks of lanterns, sacks of spuds and cartons and cans, and up, and up and up, round and round. Over the light store room was the food store room. And over the food store room was the bunk room where the three of us slept. And over the bunk room was the living and cooking room. And over the living and cooking room was the light. She was a beauty. Big steel and bronze baby with the sun gleaming through the glass walls all about. Bouncing blinding little beams off the big shining reflectors glittering and refracting through her lenses, the whole gigantic bulk of her balanced like a ballerina on the glistening steel axle of her rotary mechanism, she was a sweetheart of a light. And at night she'd lie there on the stone deck of the gallery with her revolving smoothly and quietly over your head, easing her bright white eye 360 degrees around the horizon. You'd lie there watching to see that the feeders kept working, that everything ran right. And it wouldn't be bad, the other two fellows snoring in their sacks two levels down. You'd smoke your pipe to kill the stink of the wind, and it wouldn't be bad. About those other two, Louis and Auguste. What a pair. Louis, he was head man, was a big fellow from the Basque country, black beard... Little hard black eyes and a pair of arms that I tell you those arms were as big around as my legs. Yes, head man he was, and what word he let go was law. A silent fellow, and although I spent my first two weeks trying to strike up a real conversation, the most I could ever get out of him was... John, I took up this profession because I don't like people. They want to talk too much. It's quiet work, light tending. Let's keep it that way. You, are getting to be as bad as August. I thought maybe for once they'd send me somebody. Who that was Louis.
4: Shut.
3: When he accused me of becoming like August, I quieted down. Because August was the talkingest man I'd ever met. The talkingest and the ugliest. He was hunchbacked, stood four feet high, had red hair and big blue eyes. It seems he'd been an actor in Paris.
0: Yes, indeed. Played in over 200 different productions, dear boy, at the Grand Guignol. Oh, but it was monstrous, horrible, the way we used to scare the audiences. I I was hated. Yes, yes, they used to throw things and hiss and bare their teeth at me. Finally, it got too bad. I couldn't stand it any longer. I gave up the theater. My nerves, you understand. Yes, gave it up completely. I really did. Couldn't stand it any longer.
3: It all started one morning at 2.30. I was on watch, lying on the cool stone deck, pulling on my pipe, staring out at the blackness, the phosphorescent combers, and the big yellow stars, when out of the corner of my eye I noticed something show up for a second, something the light had touched, far off. I waited for her to come around again, and when she did, there it was. Master, a big one, about a half mile off and coming down out of the north-northwest, coming straight for us. You must understand, our light was where it was for a very good reason. Dangerous submerged reefs surrounded us and ships kept clear. But this one, this sailing vessel, was coming straight on. I went over to the gallery door and yelled, Louie! Louie! Couldn't understand it. The weighted, the light to come around again.
4: Why is that? Ship headed for the reef. right up.
3: I had the glasses off now. I couldn't read her name, but I could see her quite plainly. All sails set. The foam creaming away under her bow, her beautiful lines. A Dutch ship, I guessed her. But why didn't she turn? Every time it passed, our light hit her with the glare of day. Ship? Where? North, northwest. The light will touch her in a moment. Can't they see? Look at her. She just keeps coming on. Yeah, the square What
0: is it? What is it?
3: Watch north, northwest.
0: I know. I know what it is.
3: Uh, What?
0: The Dutchman. The flying Dutchman. We did a play about her once. Oh, what a performance. You ghastly galleon, hag-ridden, cursed ribbon. Mustard. Shut up, will you?
3: She's luffing. Yes. Sloppy way to come about. She's derelict, that's it. Derelict? Abandoned. The crew left her for some reason or other. But instead of sinking, she's gone on, running before every wind.
0: She'll not run long. Not with these reefs to break her up.
3: A beautiful ship. Now, why would men leave a beautiful ship like that? She didn't ram us, although we all expected it. But as we waited for the crash, she left again, caught some odd gust and went about. We watched her the rest of those black hours, healing and rocking, pushed and pulled by every stray wind, every freak current. Watched her until the dawn came, till the sea turned from black to a pearly gray. And on she came again, heading for us. We all had our glasses trained on her now. August, you can kill the light.
0: Right, Chief.
3: She doesn't look so good by daylight. Think she'll ground this time? What? I say, do you think she'll ground this time? Huh? This is impossible. Huh? Absolutely impossible. What? Here. Take my glasses. They're better than yours. All right. And what is it you I had to focus and then my breath froze in my throat. The decks were swarming with a dark brown carpet that looked like a gigantic fungus, but undulating. And on the masts and yards, the guys and all were hundreds, no thousands, no... I don't know, an endless number of enormous rats. See them? Yes, I see them. Now we know why she's derelict. Yes, now we know.
0: What are you two doing? Here, give me a look.
3: Yes, give him the glasses. Take a good look. Chatterbox, give you something to talk about. She's still heading for us.
4: Yes.
3: (sighs) She's going to turn. She better turn soon. Suppose she doesn't. You mean suppose she piles up on the quay? It's slow tide. Yes. Yes, it is. Where's all the conversation, August? Huh? Here, want the glasses again? What? Want another look? No, no. She's still coming on. Go away! Turn, will you? Turn, I say, I
4: pray you turn. She's quite up. The rats! Look! On the water! Like a
3: carpet! They're swimming. Sure, they're swimming. Those are ships' rats. But they're swimming for the rocks. The
0: door below! It's open!
3: Come on! We went racing down the stone stairs, taking them three and four at a time. Scared, you bet we were scared. August, you get the windows. Maybe they can climb. We don't know.
4: Gracie, but hurry, hurry!
3: Look, see them? No, oh yes I do. Up at the other end of the rock. Look at the millions. They smell us. Here they come. Close the door. And I can't it's yeah. Let me. Oh, move. <laughs> he made it. Holy. Oh. That was close. One guy in. Look. There. Get him. He's
4: kicking him. Get him. Get him. Get him. Get him
3: is a tarmac, bigger, and his eyes were wild and red, his teeth long and sharp and yellow. He went for us, star and ravenous, and we fought him, fought that one rat all over the room. It was, oh, believe me, I do not exaggerate, it was like fighting a panther. Got him. we better get aloft. As we ran up the winding staircase, we passed the tiny windows of the various levels, and that every one was a thick, wriggling, screaming curtain of brown fur. I was ahead of Louis, and I at each successive level. Suppose they had
0: found a way in. Look at them! Will you look at them? It's a nightmare! Will you look at
3: them? The air of the gallery was thick and fettered with the stink of them. The light was dim, brown, filtered through the crawling mass that swarmed over the glass all about us. I could not see the sky, nothing, nothing but them... Their red eyes, their claws, their wriggling hairy snouts, and their teeth, the rats. They screamed and howled and threw themselves against the glass. They were starving. And we three, we stood very quietly. Oh, very, very quietly in the center of the classroom under our beautiful light. And we waited.
0: What can we do? What
3: can we do? Take it easy, old man. Take it easy. I not It won't do any good to stand here and shape. Uh, that's right. Anybody want a cigarette? Yes. Yes, I have one. Thank you. Good boy. We've got to keep calm about this thing. Here's a light. There
0: they to Light the fire, do they? <laughs> Guess not. <laughs> Give me another match. <laughs> You don't like that much, do you like Don't rile them, August. Give me some more matches. I'll strike them and strike them and strike them until they get scared and go away. They won't go <laughs> away. Not until... When is it, Jake. Not until what? Not until they've been fed...
3: Take just so much horror, and then you get used to it. And they were interesting to watch, you know. They couldn't understand the glass. They could see us, and they could rush at us, but that thin, invisible barrier held them off, stopped them. From time to time, we caught a glimpse of the rocks below, more rats down there, swarming brown velvet in the bright tropical sunlight. And then the tide began to rise. Only it had drowned some of them.
0: Ship's rats don't drown. <laughs> no, sir, you cannot drown one of them. They're all climbing up the tower.
3: This bunch around us is getting thicker. Yeah. Say, what's the time? Quarter six. You've got first watch, John. Right. Uh, wake me at ten. I will. Come along, Abrus. It was getting dark. One side of the room was lit a soft, filtered red sunset through the racks. Oh, very pretty. I set the wicks, checked my fuel, and then lit the lamps. It caught them, lit them in their gigantic wriggling web of pale hairless bellies, twitching red tails, bright eyes. Then I started the rotary motor. Life drove them mad as she swung slowly and smoothly about. She blinded them in the fierce, stabbing bar of light, moving continually about of a turning of a touching of a moving around and around, and they twitching and shuddering, eyes flaming when they were struck by the light. The bright light moving, and behind on the dark side of the room, so close, so close, I dared not turn my back, but you cannot help turning your back when you're in a room made of glass. On the dark side of the room, you could not see them, but only their eyes. Thousands of points of blank red light, blinking and twinkling like the stars of hell. Louis relieved me at ten, but I didn't get much sleep that night, and when I came up into the gallery early next morning... There stood August, his back to me. He was bowing to the rats, waving his arms and making a
0: speech. I am going to play once again that magnificent role which made me the toast of the Paris Theatre. Prelotte, the evil genius of the medieval underworld. I am he who did guide the dark soul of the marechal into the nether parts. <laughs> Do not be frightened, little children. I will not hurt you. I stood staring at him,
3: horror struck, but he didn't notice me. The man had gone mad. He kept turning, telling his stories to all the rats, leaving no one out.
0: August! August! Ah, another one! A leaf! Take a seat on the aisle, dear patron. Move stop over it. there. Stop it. Let the gentleman be but seated. But he didn't
3: um, um, He went on, um, bowing and scraping um, to the rats, his big blue right. eyes rolling and winking, his wild red hair waving about him. I grabbed him by the arms. And his
4: face.
3: He looked at me like a child. And then his face screwed up. He looked as though he were about to cry. Go below, go on.
0: Oh, very well then. Later, my dear audience. Later. Matinee today.
3: Sure, he was crazy, but I guess we all were. A few hours later, he came back up and caught Louie and me teasing the rats. Yes, sounds horrible. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> we could get right up against the glass and make faces at them. It drove them crazy. They would scratch away trying to get at our eyes. Louie was even cuter about it. He'd pull a piece of bread out of his pocket and press it against the glass. The rats would scramble into a solid ball, biting each other, clustering like grapes. From time to time, a whole knot of them would slip and fall the 110 feet to the surf below.
0: Sharks. They're eating them. Ah, the sharks are our
3: friends. Here, I'll get another bunch together. Here, yeah, my beauty. That's it. Pile of kill each other.
4: There they go!
3: Auguste joined in, too. Oh, very ingenious, Auguste. He learned that if he spread eagled himself against the glass, they'd bunch and bundle against his figure. Then he'd leap back.
0: Look! My portrait in rats.
3: It went on all day. And then I was lying in bed. It was about midnight. I was very tired and I was just beginning to fall off to sleep when I became conscious of a new sound. Couldn't figure it at first. I got up, lit the lamp, and went to the window. Even as I looked at it, I saw one of the panes begin to sag in. They had eaten the wood away. Louis, Louis, come uh, quick. What? What is it? They found a way in. I held the glass with my hand. Now they were all going crazy and assured of the success of this maneuver, we're all nibbling away at the wood. Louis ran below and then returned with a large sheet of tin. We spread it against the window and hammered it into place. Even as we did so, we felt the heavy body cutting against the other side as the window gave way. That ought to hold. If it doesn't, we're done for. Rats can't eat tin. No, they can't. What was that? I don't know. It came from below. The storeroom window. Uh, They're in. They're swarming up the stairs. Drop the trap. Right. Uh, Two of them got in.
0: Let's go after them.
3: We didn't have to go after them. They came at us. I leaped to one side and grabbed a marlin spike, swung, and smashed one in mid-air. No! I whirled to see Louis with the other. It had ripped his hand open, and the blood was pouring all over the place. He held his handle off and kicked at the snarling rat I stepped and swung and got him. My hand! He got my hand! That's both of them, Louis. I'll get you something to tie that up. Blood! Look at it, my... My blood! I'm bleeding! Now, don't worry about it, Louie. Here, look. I'll wind this kerchief around it. It'll be okay. Blood! There, now. It's not bad, just the flesh. And then I became conscious of another new sound. They were gnawing their way through the wooden trap door. I watched the wood fascinated. Even as I did, it began to give way. And a bristling, whiskery nose showed through. Louie, Louie, we got to go up. Next level was the middle quarters and kitchen. I slammed the trap door there, too. But it, too, was wood. Uh, my blood. What are we going to do? Hell no. We'll be through this one in a moment. The gallery. The trap door in the gallery is metal. Good. Come on. We made it. trapdoor, exhausted. While below us, the rats took over the entire tower. I could hear them howling and fighting over our food supply, our water, our leather. And all about us, the others screamed and glared in at us, swayed in a tangled mass, hypnotized by the ever-turning light. By morning, the air in the little room was horrible. Until now, we'd been getting air from the tower below. Now that was sealed off. And so was all our food and water. We lay exhausted, panting, waiting, waiting. And the hours crawled on. I was almost dozing from fatigue when I saw a sight that brought me too fast.
0: <laughs> Would you like to come in, my dear, dear? Would you? I hold the powers of life and death, and I can let you in, you are. August
3: was standing by the glass, and in one hand he held a wrench. He was tapping the glass gently, not quite hard enough to break it. I eased myself to my feet, and slowly, very slowly, tiptoed toward him.
0: All I have to do is tap just a little harder.
3: I found a coil of wire in the tool kit And I trussed him up Fastened him to a stanchion in the center of the room Louis was of no help He lay on his side looking at his bloody hand Weak and sick as a baby So there I was, a lunatic and a coward for company And all about watching our little drama The Rats The day dragged by The supply boat wasn't due for another 12 days. I don't know what they could have done if they had come. We had only one way of summoning them, and that was to shoot off distress rockets, but the rockets were four floors below. And even if they'd been right there in the gallery, I couldn't have opened a window to fire them. That night I tended the light, but its flame was devouring our oxygen. The following day we lay, thirst-tormented, starving, waiting, waiting, and the following night I again tended the light, but the small supply of spare wicking we kept in the gallery had become exhausted, and quite suddenly, about midnight, the light went out. There's nothing I could do. Wicks were stored three levels below. Nothing I could do. Nothing... From time to time, I'd strike a match to see the clock. When I did, it lit up a million red eyes about us. All about us. Watching, waiting. Below, it had grown quiet. They'd cleaned us out, and now they, too, were waiting. All waiting. And then, the rats, quite suddenly, were silent. And then I heard it. And then I saw the sky and the stars. The rats were gone. I went to the glass. Out there on the water, a small freighter, a banana boat, showing a few lights, came softly and innocently at us. The light was out. They didn't know. I wanted to open the windows to call out to them, to warn them somehow, but I was afraid. What if what if the rats were hiding from me, tricking me? So I waited. She grounded very softly on a reef not two hundred yards from the quay. Grounded so gently that the man playing the cornet, was he a passenger or True man off watch didn't even stop playing. They tried washing her back off. I could have told them to save their fuel. The tide was rising, would have floated her free. And I waited. the story. The sun came up and there wasn't a rat on the whole key. Every last one of that terrible army had left us, gone back to sea on their new ship. Auguste insane Asylum, he never recovered. And Louis, they took him into Cayenne where he died of blood poisoning from his bite. Uh, oh, yes. Well, that's the whole of it. If you'll excuse me now, I must go set my traps. No, no mouse traps. No rats in this lighthouse, I should say not. Life in the lights isn't bad. But sometimes when I see a strange vessel approaching, I get a little nervous, sure. Somewhere on the seas, there's a little banana boat without a crew. That is, without a human crew.
1: And that was Three Skeleton Key from Escape starring Vincent Price. Wonderful stuff. Ah. Just very quickly, I must correct an error I made last week. Arthur Shields was the younger brother of Barry Fitzgerald, not the older brother. Seems I got 1888 mixed up with 1898. My apologies. Okay, so we're officially in November now, and obviously things are about to get a little festive, including this very show. For anyone who's held their nose and scuba-dived into my back catalogue, you'll know that last year's Christmas special involved you guys, and this year is no different. What I need from you all is a brief, Christmas greeting. Just record it on your phones or your laptops or your desktops or on your high tech recording devices or on your wax cylinders if that is what you wish and send them to me at adam at attaboyclarence.com If you listen with the kids, get them involved. And it doesn't matter about sound quality, just send them in and you could all co-star on the Christmas special alongside some of the golden age of Hollywood's biggest stars as well as some other guest stars. So get recording and get them in as soon as you can. I'll be back with you next week. So until then, go and like the Facebook page and follow me on Twitter at @atboyc or at Movie Histories. It's been a blast to sit in your ears for an hour, and I look forward to doing it again next week. So until then, bye for now.
0: As a long-time foreign correspondent.